Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 4th. Today, what the case of accused spy Paul Whelan says about U.S.-Russia relations, the trap of likability for women in politics, and voices from the government shutdown. On the surface, it's very strange, and it has these cinematic sort of elements of this guy who was once in the military and now he's in private security and he's in Russia and he's arrested and the Russians are saying he was receiving classified information. When you start to peel it back, though, it's weirder even than most intelligence stories, which starts to tell you that there's, at least in my experience, there's a lot more here that we don't know and it's probably only going to get more bizarre. Shane Harris is a reporter for The Post. And I cover intelligence and national security. And he's been reporting on one of the more bizarre international relations stories of late, about an American who was arrested in Russia about a week ago. Russia says that Paul Whelan was, quote, caught in the act of espionage. And there are suggestions that he was a spy. After all, he made a number of trips to Russia, and he carried passports from four different countries. It just adds another element of this mystery of, like, who is this person? You know, it's it's the multiple citizenships, it's the background in law enforcement, but it's kind of exaggerated. It's why was he court-martialed and kicked out of the military? Um, and adding all of that up, it kind of only adds to a thicker plot. But Shane's sources tell him that Whelan's an unlikely candidate for a CIA operative. So Paul Whelan is a 48-year-old man from Michigan. Uh, he currently is the director of global security for a company in Michigan that distributes auto parts. Um, but he's worked for many years in corporate security, so essentially doing investigations and physical security for corporations. Prior to that, he had a career in law enforcement, and he was also a Marine reservist for a period of time and deployed a couple of times to Iraq. So his background essentially is security, law enforcement, but at pretty low levels. He never saw combat. He was never an employee for an intelligence agency of a government. And the corporate security jobs that he had don't appear to have involved him, you know, dashing around foreign capitals and meeting with strange contacts. It's sort of like being a security guard plus, if you like. And yet Russia thinks that he is a spy. Right. Well, Russia is charging him with espionage, which we should say is a fairly elastic uh, definition and their laws. And we're not entirely clear exactly what they think that he did. But yes, they are saying he was engaged in espionage. And he had spent quite a bit of time in Russia. He'd made many trips there. Uh, he spoke Russian passably, Russian. that He taught himself the language while he was in the Marines. And he had a profile on this site called uh, V-Contact, which is like the, the Russian Facebook. So he had made friends there. He'd met people in real life from the site. So he had a presence in Russia. He was more than a tourist, but he wasn't living there. And as far as we know, he was certainly not dispatched there by a U.S. government agency. What does the Russian government say about like what he actually did that would 
make him a perpetrator of espionage. So what we know so far has come out in a Russian, uh, not exactly unbiased press agency that is actually run by someone who's a former KGB officer who's close to Vladimir Putin. So take that with a big Russian-sized piece of salt. What they are alleging based on their own anonymous sourcing is that he was in Russia and he received from a contact there a flash drive that they say contains the names of Russians who work in a secret Russian intelligence agency. And some moments after he got the flash drive, uh, agents busted into his hotel room at the Metropole, very famous hotel in Moscow, and arrested him. So in a sense, it sounds like he was potentially set up at somebody who the Russians may have had their eyes on thinking he was engaged in espionage. And they came in and, as the press report put it, caught him red-handed receiving classified information. And a lot of people back here in the States say that they think it's pretty unlikely that he was actually engaging in real espionage or was actually a spy. What are the reasons why he seems like an unlikely secret spy? So the first big reason, just a general reason, even separate from Paul Whelan, is that the CIA, which is the agency that manages spies in Russia and in Moscow, would not be sending somebody there under what's called unofficial cover. So our Americans who are doing intelligence work in Moscow, they're there officially as diplomats just attached to the embassy there. They wouldn't take somebody who works in private security for an auto parts company and use him as a secret spy in Russia. It's too dangerous. And if he were caught under what's called non-official cover, essentially the American government would sort of disavow him and it would be he'd be gone. It's sort of like the Mission Impossible thing. If, if, you're, if you're caught, we'll deny all knowledge. We don't do that with our spies, in, not our Americans who are working in Russia. Now we recruit Russians in Russia to spy on their government. That's different. But specific to Paul Whelan, why intelligence officials I talked to said it's not likely going to be him, this is not somebody who has a background that's suited for this kind of work. Private intelligence, nothing really high level. Yes, he was in the Marines. He was also, though, dishonorably discharged, and we're learning more about the circumstances of that. That alone would have disqualified him for being somebody that the intelligence services in this country would have recruited as an employee because they'd go through a really thorough background check and a scrubbing, and essentially, if you're dishonorably discharged, in this case, it looks like he was accused and convicted of committing crimes. They're not going to hire somebody at the CIA with a criminal history. So if he's clearly not a high-level member of the CIA, then why would Russia go after him? Well, that's a great question. So the, the thing that is jumping to people's minds right now, particularly former intelligence officials who've worked in Moscow, uh, is the name of a woman, Maria Butina. Maria Butina is this woman who has pleaded guilty to acting as an unregistered agent of Russia in the United States. And she was trying to penetrate American political conservative groups, particularly the National Rifle Association. So people are wondering whether or not the Russians took Paul Whelan in order to possibly retaliate for the Americans going after Maria Butina or possibly to conduct a swap. So we've seen these instances before of these spy swaps where the Russians have some of our agents, we have some of theirs, and we agreed to swap them. I'm a little skeptical of that only because Paul Whelan is not an American agent. So we're not going to trade for someone who's not really a spy working for the U.S. government. The Russians surely know that. Nevertheless, it could be that taking Paul Whelan is a retaliatory measure. So even if there's not a swap plan, it could be a way of Moscow saying to us, fine, you take one of ours, we'll take one of yours, even if it's just an American, not a CIA officer. What have U.S. officials said about this? And, and are they giving any indication that they 
actually care about this guy. <laughs> yeah. So I think U.S. officials have said very little. And I think the reason for that is they're still trying to figure out who exactly Paul Whelan is and what he was doing in Moscow. We know that when he was arrested, his family says he was there attending a wedding of a friend. But they're also trying to figure out why he was in Russia all these other times and what his connections to the country are. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been taking the lead on this. Interestingly, what he has said publicly, which is not very much, is um, if we find that the circumstances of his arrest are unjust, we will seek his return. That if is kind of curious. What you haven't seen is American officials coming out and pounding the table, demanding access to him, demanding know what's going on, give him back. They're kind of saying, well, let's see what the Russians tell us what he did, which I don't think anybody really believes that the Russians are going to be honest about what it is that he did. So the reaction has been a little bit muted in wait and see, which is, I have to say, strange when you're talking about an American who has been arrested in Moscow held, he was held for days without access to his own government. Usually we're a little more forceful in our demands for some kind of answer and response when that happens. What does this whole ongoing escapade say about the relationship between the U.S. and Russia right now? It tells you that it's not good. Anytime that the Russian government is arresting Americans and particularly under, you know, dubious circumstances, it tells you that the Russians are pretty angry. And to some extent, I think in this instance tells you that they feel that they can get away with it. You know, you haven't seen a really forceful response. The president hasn't really even talked about it. I'm not sure he's mentioned it at all. So what it tells you that there we maybe are, at least from the Russians' point of view, in this kind of tit-for-tat moment, if in fact they grabbed Whalen as a retaliation for Butina. Relations obviously have not been good for a long time with the Russians, notwithstanding the president's, you know, personal affection for Putin and the way he goes out of his way to put himself at odds with his own administration. Possible that the Russians are calculating and betting on that and thinking we can grab this guy and we're not going to see a forceful response from the from the head of the U.S. government because he's been trying to improve relations. This is going to be a test for this administration because regardless of what Paul Whelan did, he is still an American who has been arrested in a foreign country under laws and treaties. He has rights to, you know, consular officials from his government. There is a process that's supposed to be followed here. And I do think that his family is expecting that the Trump administration will demand that that process be followed uh, and do everything they can to either bring him home or ensure that he has a fair hearing in Russia. After we talked to Shane... The Post reported that while Whalen was in the military, he was writing bad checks and trying to steal funds, a sign that he could have debts, which could make him susceptible to being recruited by a foreign intelligence agency. In other words, the plot continues to thicken. Less than a week since Senator Elizabeth Warren said she was running for president in 2020, people have already started bringing up a familiar criticism. There was this question that immediately came up about whether or not she is um, likable enough to be president of the United States or to be the nominee. That likability question. It's something that every 2020 candidate is going to have to face sooner or later. But as politics reporter Annie Linsky points out, the measure of likability will probably have the biggest impact on women. And maybe even more so for a particular woman, Elizabeth Warren. Because, well... 
tied to that is whether or not she is too much like Hillary Clinton, hmm. which is sort of like the kiss of death. Well, too much like Hillary Clinton yeah. in that she's like an older white woman right. and have the same haircut. So clearly they're the same person. The absolute same person. They're, they're not. That was a joke. They're not the same person. <laughs> so and, and it was a deep irony for those who've covered Warren and Clinton for a long time like I have, because for many years they were considered the opposite. And Warren was always considered the more palatable option to Hillary that, you know, I don't really want to, you know, I'm not sexist. I just don't like Hillary, you know, and golly, here I'm proving I'm not sexist because I like Elizabeth Warren. But, you know, something shifts in, in some people's minds when a woman raises their hand and says, you know what, I want to be in charge. And suddenly um, they're viewed a little differently. But to be an executive <laughs> and a woman is less palatable, you know, if we're using the word palatable, is less palatable than than to be a lawmaker and a woman. Yeah. But at this point, people will say about Elizabeth Warren, we just really like what she's doing in the Senate. So we think she should stay there. She's just doing such a good job as a senator. And so just why does she have to do anything else? Um, And you just don't hear that about men, really. I mean, like every single member of the United States Senate wakes up every single morning and looks in the mirror and sees a president. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's just true. So the idea that Elizabeth should just have to stay in this institution um, because she happens to be good at it is a little odd. And do you anticipate this continuing to plague her her campaign the way that it did for Hillary Clinton both times she ran? Well, you know, I think one of the interesting things about that question is, unlike um, 2016, there, and unlike really any campaign that I can think of here, you're going to have probably four um, top-tier women candidates. In addition to Warren, you could lo- you could also have Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, a senator from Minnesota. You could have um, Christian Gillibrand um, from New York. And then there's Kamala Harris. But you, if you do have a field with four strong women running, you know, for viable female candidates, then I think the dynamic shifts a little bit. And I think it would be hard for people to say, I just, there's something about all of them I don't like. I mean, maybe. (laughs) What's the common denominator there? There's there's somebody, one of them has to be likable, right? Or, you know. I feel like that gets at this question of, like, what does likability even mean when we use it in the in the sense of political campaigning. Yeah. Well, I, I love that question because you look at somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's sort of like aggressively unlikable. I am told that I don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with a joke. You all ready for a joke? <laughs> so when people tell you I'm ultra serious and grumpy, you tell them that you heard me tell a joke. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like part of his brand that he's a little gruff and a little grumpy, but it doesn't. But, make, but it works for him. It it's works like for his him. Shtick. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you don't want to spend time with him. Like I've traveled with Bernie, and I've dealt with grumpy Bernie, and it's all like kind of charming. So it is an intangible, and that's why um, I think it can be frustrating for women and for people who are pushing more women to run for. for offices. It's like a a gut reaction that they can't quite articulate. And um, so they just sort of lump it into this concept of likability. It's something that women do contend with. And um, and, and, and men do too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you look at presidential races and um, there is a sense that, you know, George W. Bush was just 
the more likable candidate. Everyone wanted you to know? get a beer with him. Right, right. You know, so there's the beer question. So this it's not to say that this is like a purely woman issue, um, but I think what happens is it just is more impactful. And the research shows that it's more impactful um, when a woman is viewed as unlikable. I think that as Democrats start gaming out their field for, for 2020, you're already starting to see these questions of like, should we have a woman running against Donald Trump? Because like it or not, the last time this happened, Democrats right. lost. They were devastated. They were shocked by it. And, you know, maybe this isn't the moment to try that again. Yeah, that is a question that is swirling around in Democratic politics right now. You know, my response to this um, has been that, look, I mean, for this country's history, since its founding, white men have lost presidential elections every single time. I mean, if you look back in history, there is a, there are a lot of white men who have lost. And so, you know, there hasn't been this soul searching about, gosh, like we put up a white man, he lost. We just we need to do something different. I don't know that I agree with that with the with the question there, but it is something they're talking about, and it is a very legitimate issue because it's not the type of thing where um, I just hear it from kind of like you know elites and consultants. I mean, you just I really hear it uh, in the at the very kind of like voter level of people who are just so kind of traumatized by uh, Democrats who are so traumatized by. President President Trump, there is a segment of the Democratic voters who just don't, they just want somebody who will win. And it doesn't matter if they're for Medicare for all, if they're for, you know, where they are on a number of issues that we used to, we're used to thinking as quite important. So for Elizabeth Warren and other women who, you know, might be entering the, the Democratic race for president, what will they do to combat this idea that they're just not likable enough to be a serious contender. I think um, talking to other people who know much more about this than I do, the sort of sense is there's not a lot these women candidates can do. I mean, you cannot say to somebody, don't be sexist or like me. You know, that just doesn't work. And I what 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 research has shown is that just having more women running for these offices normalizes the idea that like, oh, it actually is not kind of it's not odd to see a woman on a presidential debate stage. It's not odd to see a female nominee for a party. And the the vexing nature of the notion of female um, power just becomes less strange. And I, I think that seems to be what has borne itself out on um, certainly the state levels. I mean, you've seen it with governor's races where, you know, the men are elected over and over again, and then finally a woman is elected. And then and this is then a bunch of women are elected after that first one is, is selected. That it takes one successful one to sort of rip the Band-Aid off. Right, right. Annie Linsky is a national political reporter for The Post. This weekend, she'll be in Iowa as Warren makes her first stop this year to the early caucus state. Before we go, one more thing. The government has been partially closed now for nearly two weeks. Trump and congressional leaders emerged from yet another closed-door meeting today with no deal. I'm very proud of doing what I'm doing. I don't call it a shutdown. I call it doing what you have to do for the benefit and for the safety of our country. 
Trump, who is demanding funding for a border wall, says work would continue through the weekend. But Senator Chuck Schumer seemed doubtful on whether a resolution would be reached anytime soon. So we told the president we needed the government open. He resisted. In fact, he said he'd keep the government closed for a very long period of time, months or even years. And while these disagreements feel like business as usual here in Washington, the shutdown is having real impacts across the country. My name is June Kai. I live in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, my name is Christopher Boss. I'm a current federal correctional officer in Beaumont, Texas. My name is Elizabeth Dahlhoff, and I live in San Francisco, California. My husband has stage four pancreatic cancer. Because of the government shutdown, all processing of all social security claims that require a processor, meaning anything around disability, have been put aside. My son goes to um, daycare at the National Institute of Science and Technology and they're closed due to the shutdown. So it's a little bit complicated because he has special needs. It's been very hard for him because it was very unexpected. Like they all went to school that Friday and then went home for the weekend and then the school didn't reopen. We have a little over 800 federal officers required to come to work and not be paid until the shutdown is completed. They're very concerned about making uh, their monthly bills and, and their mortgage payments and, and stuff. I haven't been able to tell my child why his school's closed. Um, when is it going to reopen? He misses his friends, his teachers. It, it, it's just been very frustrating, you know, even for him because he doesn't understand what's happening. To us, it's not really a partisan issue. I mean, Democrat or Republican, we understand that the wall needs to be funded. But to support federal law enforcement, to me, should be nonpartisan. This should be, this should be done. This doesn't make any sense to, to us or our employees. If we didn't have other insurance, we would have no income. I'm, I'm hoping that um, that this shutdown, you know, is not extended. But who knows at this point? That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Natalie Gastica. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also does our sound design and theme music. The Post's director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.